My name is John Ramo, here speaking for the Journal of the History of Ideas podcast, In Theory. I had the opportunity to speak with Professor Sebastian Weig of the École des Autres Études en Sciences Sociales on the appearance of his latest book, Minjung, The Rise of China's Grassroot Intellectuals, appearing with Columbia University Press in April 2019, with a paperback edition appearing this coming September. Professor Vegg's research and teaching focuses on the intellectual and cultural history of contemporary China and Hong Kong, as well as upon questions of their literatures, the functioning of their public spheres, and democracy. From his first book, Fiction du pouvoir chinois, littérature, modernisme et démocratie au début du XXe siècle, to his latest, Professor Vegg's work explores the knotty complex of ideas, actions, agents, and problems familiar to all intellectual historians. At the same time, his work introduces new concepts and models of intellectuals, discourses, agency, and fields of activity. Myself no expert in Asian history, I found myself fascinated, and I hope, productively challenged by Professor Vegg's interrogations of specific linguistic and political contexts of today's China. Our interview on his monograph, named after the type of figures Professor Vegg discusses, brought me to rethink many of the same master concepts and categories swirling around intellectuals in American and European history, invoking Habermas, Bourdieu, Foucault, among other standard references in our shared toolkit, Professor Vegg's new study almost paradoxically locates grassroots intellectuals, what might appear at first to be marginal discourses, and their emergent, flickering publics at the center of recent Chinese history. But the paradox quickly disappears in this fascinating account, and the book's working method from the edges in and around the same edges serves at once as an ideal introduction, as well as a wonderfully expert study of the world's potentially largest public sphere. Before continuing to the interview, I should add a disclaimer that, not knowing Chinese, I often mispronounced or hesitated speaking the names of key figures in Minjiang, the rise of China's grassroots intellectuals. Thankfully, and just as surely as in the book itself, Professor Vegg was gracious enough to correct me as we discussed a work I cannot highly enough recommend to all intellectual and cultural historians, media scholars, historians working on politics and literary, and literary scholars. And with that, let us begin this interview for the Journal of the History of Ideas podcast, In Theory. So, first of all, Professor Vegg, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. To jump right into our questions, then, I'd like to begin with a general question of background. What led to your becoming an historian, and more precisely, an historian of China and Hong Kong from the 20th century to today? Well, my first uh, encounter with China was uh, really uh, quite fortuitous. Um, I, uh, I, I, I went to, I traveled to China in the summer after graduating from high school and took some language classes and traveled around the country, and then I sort of uh, got got hooked on 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 some of the things I saw there and thought that I might be interested in pursuing uh, those those issues in a more academic way eventually and that eventually did happen so um, uh, in the course of my PhD I, I sort of started learning Chinese in a more systematic way and tried to um, study some Chinese texts so that's when I encountered um, the uh, early 20th century writers that I wrote about in my PhD, especially Lu Xun, who's a kind of uh, uh, as much a, a myth as a writer in 20th century China. So through Lu Xun, you sort of touch on pretty much every subject related to uh, intellectuals, politics, um, 
Chinese society, uh, revolution, and all of these themes that sort of go through, run through 20th century China. So um, I wrote about the May 4th movement and connections between uh, literary writing and democratic claims in the early 20th century. Um, and then from there, I uh, it was again a sort of twist of fate that um, it took me to more contemporary issues because uh, shortly after that, I, uh, I applied for successfully a position in Hong Kong where I was lucky enough to spend almost 10 years uh, working in a center that concentrates on contemporary China. So uh, I temporarily bracketed early 20th century China, although it's still very much there in the background, but um, uh, really turned to um, contemporary society. And again, through the, the lens of intellectuals and um, sort of intellectuals in their publics, publications, journals, all of these topics that had interested me in relation with early 20th century China. So uh, that's really how I, how I came to engage with these questions. Um, I should add that this was also a time when uh, China was uh, retrospectively, some people talk about the golden age of Hu Jintao, I think that would be a little bit exaggerated, but certainly China was more um, more open and evolving in a in a way that made many people in China feel more optimistic than they do today. So it was a very, it was a good time to engage with people and to talk with them about what they, what, 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 what they were working on and what they, what they felt were the prospects for, um, for themselves and for society in a, in a broader sense. So this book, Minjian, is really a kind of um, a product of those of those years of traveling to China very often and engaging with many of the people who are featured in the book. So it would be fair to say in this case, I suppose, that there were common threads, themes, and concerns leading from your earlier work, um, Fiction du Pouvoir Chinois, Literature, Modernisme, et Démocratie et du but du XXe siècle, and You've also edited a volume, Popular Memories of the Mao Era, From Critical Debate to Reassessing History, which also appeared last year. Um, so I'd be curious to hear how your work led outwards into this book, especially looking back to your work on the May 4th movement. So um, there's a kind of break that I think happened uh, uh, in China sometime in the 1990s, and that's really where my work on May 4th was very useful in understanding what was actually going on in the 1990s. So Chinese intellectuals traditionally and actually throughout the 20th century have always held this kind of um, very uh, uh, prestigious and a very special position in society um, in which they can legitimately contribute to the major discussions about the future of the nation and society. Um, so this is what traditionally was understood as uh, taking responsibility for the world under the heavens. Um, in modern times, it sort of morphed seamlessly into the avant-garde role of intellectuals within the Communist Party. Um, and even in the 1980s, in the, in the well, all of the kind of intellectual um, uh, 
effervescence that happened in the 1980s and leading up to the democracy movement in 1989 was still very much um, infused with this idea that intellectuals had a very uh, prominent role to play in uh, questioning uh, the way society was organized or the way politics were organized. So that somehow came to an end in the 1990s. So what I was seeing in the 19, in the in the 2000s and 2010s. Um, didn't really match this kind of traditional figure of Chinese intellectuals. So uh, that's what I found really interesting in, in sort of understanding what these people were doing was how they tried to sort of distance themselves from this very, uh, uh, um, very deep running, very old tradition of how, who a Chinese intellectual is and how they're supposed to express themselves. Um, the, uh, the, the popular memories of the Mao era project was a bit of a um, kind of a side project which actually also uh, uh, is reflected in Minxian uh, trying to capture this whole movement of amateur historians of the Mao era and how they tried to challenge official ways of writing history. Which of course you discuss in the chapter in Minxian and we'll discuss that um, at length soon I know. And here, I think when you speak about a break, it brings me to a point that I found very interesting in, the, in this new book as well, where you very carefully delineate a new periodization, indeed, specifically novel characterizations of Chinese intellectuals today. So I'll be quoting from your book here at points. Uh, namely, they step back from assuming responsibility for the state after the democracy movement of 1989 and in the wake of economic reforms in 1992. You list three central ways in which the Minjiang, Minjiang identity or identities changed at these points, namely, first, a shift away from state work um, uh, groups, uh, universities, writers associations, state media, and they shifted to, towards new professional categories and intellectual specializations, such as journalism, law, as you just, recent, you just mentioned, amateur historical research, editing, filmmaking, and more. Secondly, you also sketch a broader term from, quote, grand narratives of modernization and democracy, end quote, towards concrete social issues focusing upon marginal groups of society. Third, you discuss a, and I quote once again, a pluralization of society and the diversification of modes of action and intervention. And these also include new media, new forms of creating and intervening in public dialogues and more. The result is what you term grassroots intellectuals, assembled under the Minjiang concept. Or again, these figures are, in your words, liberated from the double bind of responsibility to the nation and to their ethical convictions. And hence, they devote less time to abstract political theories and moralizing and call attention to the, um, grave. the grave consequences of intellectuals' unshakable loyalty to the state. They are not disconnected from social and political elites, and many maintain links with universities or professions, but they are also much more strongly linked to non-elite groups than were the intellectuals studied in previous decades. We'll discuss all of this at greater length, I'm sure, in the course of the interview, but a few immediate questions come to mind, and perhaps we can take these one at a time. How important was the continual presence of, in my words, I suppose, state-sponsored intellectuals and intellectual communities for Minjian self-definition. Uh, another way to put this too is, once these were established, um, these terms, 
due to conditions of what you term as a third sector structure of sort of running opposition to intellectuals within the state and within the market. And again, to add to this same perhaps too long question, how important was an intellect and is an intellectual comp competition with say the new left intellectuals, for instance, for Minchun figures, or even an internal competition with figures like the very popular um, intellectual you profile, Han Han? Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, so, of course, in the 1990s, China went through this incredible uh, time of um, economic reforms, marketization of the cultural sector, dismantling of state structures. Um, so uh, many of these work units in which these people worked, so uh, places that were uh, all, of course, under the umbrella of the state, like universities or state-run publishers or state-run newspapers and so on, they were not necessarily entirely freed from state control, but they were told to obey market mechanisms and they were told that they needed to make money. So that created new um, niches or new possibilities for people to challenge certain borders of um, uh, what could legitimately be um, articulated in public. Um, so uh, well to to you know speak in more concrete terms certain topics that were uh, completely off limits for reasons of censorship um, suddenly became entered a kind of gray zone where publishers needed to make money so because they needed to make money they would be willing to take certain risks um, since many of the censored topics are in fact not um, uh, laid down in any kind of comprehensive document, uh, publishers are always in a situation, and I say publishers, but also newspaper editors or other cultural um, uh, administrators, um, are in a situation where they have to make judgments all the time. So uh, they were willing to uh, take more risks because of the need to um, uh, sell copies of, of their publications. So. Um, this opened uh, considerable possibilities for um, intellectuals because uh, they were uh, they were somewhat so it's I mean you can't make this argument too absolute but they were somewhat further removed from the control um, of the state so the role of the state in legitimizing Chinese intellectual discourses um, can't be emphasized enough. I mean, ever since traditional times, the intellectual's role has always been defined with respect to the state, either um, as a kind of um, uh, ethical um, guarantor or uh, uh, sometimes um, critic, loyal critic of state policies, um, all the way through, as I said, the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, so this, uh, this, this, the challenge to this role had some very um, significant implications. Um, people were became uh, people began to speak out, but it's not only a question of speaking out and actually saying things; it's also the ability to be heard or to be read. So certain types of discourses now became legitimate without necessarily being uh, in the interest or within under the umbrella of the state. So uh, taking this question from the other end, I would say that my interest in Minjian intellectuals or grassroots intellectuals or intellectuals outside of institutions or outside of the establishment, we can come back to how this term can be defined or, or translated or maybe not translated. Um, but uh, 
my interest stemmed from the fact that many of the so-called elite intellectuals, many of them are academics um, who work in uh, Chinese universities, so in state-run structures, um, were sort of stuck in debates that seemed more and more irrelevant to the evolution of society. So in particular, many of these de debates around the new left and the so-called liberals, so basically, uh, in my view, just reflected kind of factions in the uh, power elite. So basically, these were just people who were speaking out for uh, their patrons or who were recruited by patrons within the uh, state system to uh, formulate certain intellectual discourses. But uh, these discourses were, um, I found them, as I said, I mean, of course, you, you, you can't say they are illegitimate, you know, they, they have their, uh, their reasons for existing, but I felt that they were more and more disconnected from the way that Chinese society was actually evolving. So, uh, well, in 1992, there was this big discussion about whether reform should be surnamed K or surnamed uh, S, right? So, uh, well, I guess C or S, if you translate it into uh, English terms, so whether reforms should be surnamed capitalism or socialism. So this debate was really uh, sort of what spawned the new left and liberals debate. And basically uh, that that debate which is still ongoing has gone nowhere um to put it in the terms of one of these very um i think insightful maverick intellectuals Qin Hui uh, says uh has written a series of articles and books and interventions basically saying well this debate doesn't really capture the problems of chinese society because chinese society is both uh, too liberal and not liberal enough and both too repressive and not repressive enough so it's um it's too repressive in that it does not tolerate dissent um but it's also too liberal in the sense that it doesn't offer social protection or even uh, full citizenship for disenfranchised groups. So this issue can't simply be framed within this kind of theoretical uh, binary. So you have to look at issues in a much more, uh, I would say, bottom-up way. So that's what many of these people were actually interested in doing, looking at using, rather than these big discourses, as you, as you said, um, using specialized knowledge to look at what the problem actually is and how the problem actually emerges within society rather than simply going back and forth um, uh, on, on, on these concepts. This is fascinating and it also leads well, to a series of questions that we'll get through, get to in our interview. And here, something I want to ask in response to this, as it seems to be almost a parallel thread to the narrative that you draw in the book, is, for lack of a better term, almost endogenous kind of intellectual influences that come up for Minjian intellectuals uh, throughout their development. And they're not necessarily from Western sources. You also speak very broadly to Eastern models, both Eastern European models, both in your own analytical categories, but then also discussing how these references pop up uh, almost periodically for the Mingzhang intellectuals themselves. So here, I'd like to mention the uh, debates that you discuss in your book attending to the translation of Richard po uh, Posner's Public Intellectuals in 2002, uh, an official editorial of the Southern People Weekly in 2004, which very carefully contextualized Bertrand Russell, 
uh, Albert Einstein, Susan Sontag, and uh, even mentioned a, or directly engaged with people, well, outside of this editorial in the book, uh, with people like Bourdieu, Foucault, there are even in instances, it's interesting, as a translation and use of Robert's rules of orders of order as a pattern for civic discourse. In the same uh, vein, Foucault reappears throughout the book, both for your own categories as well as for your subjects, James Scott, and uh, there's also, I found very interesting, uh, exposure to or even working with foreign filmmakers. So here I'd like to ask you, how exactly Mingjian intellectuals had their own foreign models of engaged intellectuals? We could also mention here the Civil Liberties Union or uh, another running thread, uh, foreign dissident intellectuals like Václav Havel, Anna Michnich, Andrei Sakharov, and others. Um, and of course, if we're thinking about contemporary public intellectuals today, there's Arundhati Roy and people working on Roma and refugee rights. So to take a, a step back, it's not a question of a direct influence, but more absorption, reappropriation, and even con uh, contestation by Minjung intellectuals of foreign intellectual influences. And I'd like to know, do you have any other thoughts on this? Another very good point. Um, well, Chinese intellectual, the Chinese intellectual scene uh, has been maybe as opposed to many uh, Western intellectual scenes or fields, has been extremely cosmopolitan uh, for at least the last century or more, I would say at least the last uh, 120 or 130 years. So um, this is indeed a kind of constant in China that people are always looking at uh, uh, what other countries are doing, what new books are being published around the world. So this is this is uh, so of course uh, this kind of um, uh, this kind of stance has also been criticized as a form of uh, uh, intellectual colonialism and so on. So there have been many many books published in this vein. But I I think uh, it's worth highlighting the kind of positive aspect of this uh, of this intellectual tradition of openness and cosmopolitanism and and diverse debate with um, ideas and publications coming from all around the world. Um, so this is this is really a characteristic of of the Chinese intellectual scene. Um, so indeed, as you say, uh, uh, Chinese references and foreign West references um, get discussed and mixed together and reinterpreted and, and sort of reincorporated into indigenous discourses all the time. So Minjian, I should say, is a very um, endogenous word. It's a, it's a traditional word. Uh, so traditionally, we have this opposition in China between guan and min. So guan is everything that's related to the state, uh, everything official, um, uh, yeah, basically those are the main semantic traits. And then min is everything that's on the side of the people or of society, unofficial, um, uh, activities. So, uh, Minjian simply means Jian means among. So Minjian simply means among the people or among among unofficial society. So uh, this 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 is a kind of binary that is immediately um, evocative to uh, speakers of Chinese. So. Um, it's hard to speak of Minjian itself as a non endogenous tradition, but 
again, this tradition has been redefined or rethought, reformulated with uh, the uh, circulation, translation, reinterpretation of many of these um, Western or simply foreign uh, concepts, as you as you mentioned. Um, maybe to give a few examples. Uh, well, the, the notion of intellectual is, of course, one that comes from uh, an exogenous uh, tradition. So um, in China, the word for, I mean, in pre-modern China, people like this uh, would usually be called shidafu uh, or uh, literati officials. Um, so, which does not really, I mean, these, these terms don't really contain the same kind of, they don't sketch out the same kind of landscape as the term intellectual. So the first, the term came to China through Russia, through the, the, the word or the notion of intelligentsia. So that's how um, uh, it, it was first defined as a class. So the first word for intellectuals was jiji. So jiji means class, the knowledge class. Um, and then because of the rising strength, so this would be around 1910s, 1920s, because of the rising um, attraction of Marxism, uh, this idea of an intellectual class was seen as unfavorable to the legitimate role of intellectuals within the revolution. So it was argued that intellectuals had to be part of the working class, part of the revolutionary class, rather than a class in themselves. So that's where the modern word for intellectual emerged, which is so fenze means elements. So you have knowledge elements uh, distributed within society, knowledgeable elements, as some people say. So, um, so this word, of course, has generated uh, many, many discussions. Uh, under Mao, intellectuals were excluded from the working class. They were uh, sort of thrown back to bourgeois, capitalist, landowners, etc. And one of Deng Xiaoping's great moves in bringing the intellectual class back on his side was in his 1978 speech to the uh, National Science Congress where he reaffirmed that intellectuals were part of the working class and therefore they were legitimate to speak out in public. So the echoes of these discussion play out up to the present day. So this uh, controversy you mentioned about uh, Richard Posner's book and the notion of public intellectual actually was generated by uh, People's Daily, so the official state organ, uh, People's Daily editorial saying, um, um, public intellectuals is not an acceptable notion in a socialist state because the only thing that can be public is the working class. Um, so uh, everyone else speaks for their private interests. So public intellectuals, this is a non-concept. Um, so of course this generated some pushback <laughs> among intellectuals. But I think it also led to a kind of deeper challenge to this notion of intellectuals separate from society. So this is actually quite fascinating. So despite the pushback against the people's daily sort of the people's daily's anathema, um, a couple of years later, the notion of public intellectuals had sort of fallen out of use. People began to feel that public intellectuals were just people who were being paid by large corporations or politicians or you know patron-client networks to advance um, certain 
private interests within society. So this idea of speaking out for the public good was very deeply questioned once again. So that's where this idea of a more specific intellectual emerged. And this is also connected to the reception of Foucault, which you pointed out, and to the reception of writings by people like Sigmund Baumann. So the idea that intellectuals would should be, would be, should be, could be uh, interpreters rather than legislators. This is this had a lot of echo in Chinese society. So um, that's I would say is the kind of large framework. Of course, I can I can give some more uh, specific examples. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, American Civil Liberties Union and the questions about immigration or Roma. So in China, there's this very um, uh, sort of difficult issue uh, of uh, internal migration. So um, there. Uh, Rural, so there's a two twofold household registration system. People either have a urban or an ur rural household registration, and if you're a rural resident, you don't have um, a right to live in a city. So uh, you, with everything that goes along with that right, which means enrolling children in school, uh, being able to go to a hospital if you're ill, getting medical treatment, and so on. So. Um, China's economic boom, as has been widely discussed, was accompanied by this huge migration from rural to urban settings. But of course, all these migrants did not have urban residence rights. So a lot of the um, kind of uh, legal activism or what I would call the legal Minjian intellectuals, the grassroots lawyers or rights lawyers, they've, they've been called by various names, um, uh, crystallized around this issue of internal migration and the rights of internal migrants. So there was a famous case in 2003 where a, a young graduate, a uh, university graduate uh, who did not have residency rights in Guangzhou was picked up by the police on one of these routine uh, sort of arrests and put into a repatriation center and he happened to die there very probably because of mistreatment police uh, violence um, and that led to a full-fledged kind of um, a legal movement with a letter that was written by three legal scholars to the National People's Congress and the status of uh, rural migrants in cities was actually revised by the National People's Congress. So this is this is somehow I think comparable to events that may have happened in Western countries, you know, in the 1970s or 1980s. Um, and I know we'll return to those lawyers shortly, uh, but to take one step back, uh, so discussing terminology and how these intellectuals view themselves, I'd like to ask a little more about your own working methods. So as much as you discuss the reception of Foucault, you also invoke Foucault in your own analyses of uh, Minjian intellectuals as a group. You also mentioned Zygmunt Bauman, and there are other figures who you either mention, obviously you know, or maybe don't draw upon, such as Edward Schills, Gramsci. And so here I'd like to ask a little bit more about your own working methods while writing a Minjiang. Uh, and maybe my particular question here would be how, for lack of a better term, you're mobilizing native categories, that is the terminology that they've come up with themselves. Well, I don't want to say building a bridge necessarily, but tying it in with Western terms for intellectuals. Yes, this term Minjian, is used widely by these people to refer to their activities, the people I study. So that was indeed my starting point is I, I, I mean, obviously, as you well know, the field of intellectuals has been uh, overstudied uh, by many measures. Um, so it's hard to sort of 
mm, uh, fray a path among these many existing studies um, when the actual empirical material is not really aligned with the, um, I would say, the background out of which these studies grew. So I don't want to make a culturalist argument. I mean, I do think that China can be studied using uh, uh, the same epistemic categories as other societies. I would certainly not suggest otherwise. But of course, we also need to pay uh, sufficient attention to the categories that are being used by the actors we are studying. So um, in this case, this Minjian category seemed to be very uh, operative for uh, the people I was interested in and more um, uh, more importantly, it also tied together a whole range of activities that people instinctively didn't really um, tie uh, together. So uh, one of the um, one of the words that I stumbled upon. So one of the ways in which Minjian intellectuals define themselves is that they are on the side of what they call the zhuoshi or the uh, vulnerable categories, vulnerable groups in society. So um, uh, this word really came from, was popularized in the work of Wang Xiaobo, uh, who was a very, um, uh, very popular uh, column writer and also novelist in the uh, 1990s, who died far too early in 1996 of a heart attack. Um, but um, so this category uh, I think is is very um, somehow again very central to this notion of what these people are doing because traditionally Chinese intellectuals would position themselves on the side of the state or on the side of the elite and speak out for the common good. But these people really took this idea of vulnerable groups as a justification for public speech. And that is kind of tied in with Wang Xiaobo's own uh, thinking about Chinese history and about Chinese intellectuals and their problems. Um, but it also echoes, so Wang Xiaobo uh, uh, was also influenced in a very interesting way. So uh, there's another scholar called Li Yinhe, who also happens to be uh, uh, Wang Xiaobo's wife. Um, so Li Yinhe studied for a, a PhD in sociology in, in the United States in the uh, 1980s, and she uh, came into contact with uh, uh, subaltern studies, uh, Foucault, um, uh, a whole set of literature that 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 perhaps most people in China at that time didn't really know about. So the way that Wang Xiaobo sort of absorbed these categories from the Yinhe study and tied them in with his own sort of rereading of Chinese tradition, I think, has been very helpful to um, uh, formulating the 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 scope of this study. And here I should also compliment you uh, as an historian and how exactly the sophistication you bring to the materials that you actually study. You focus on what you call intellectual spaces, and I would also add to that networks. By looking at such sources as unofficial journals, commercial newspapers, bookstores, you have fascinating discussions of artist villages, um, film festivals, social media, and that is, uh, per your argument, you're working primarily with published materials. And at one point you say that the new forms of knowledge that these materials furnish are elaborated both on the basis of ethnographic investigation and social science, and on a form of sensibility to the subjects under investigation, which gives a greater role to personal experience and engagement. And I would just be curious if you would add anything to that to describe your own working methods.
clearly these sort of subaltern texts uh, or uh, uh, intellectual history of non-canonical texts is something that I've been very interested in uh, all along. So the fact that intellectual history is not only something that deals with um, some uh, larger-than-life uh, uh, figures, right, uh, I mean, a lot of traditional intellectual history is written around individuals. So what I really wanted to do is, I mean, even people who are interested, for example, in dissidents in China tend to, um, <coughs> I would say, place um, excessive importance on individual figures. So what I was really interested in was more looking at these issues in, in, in other ways. So. Um, I'm also not necessarily uh, persuaded by Bourdieu's kind of model of the collective intellectual, uh, which to me still remains very kind of um, elitist and traditional. I mean, the kind of uh, uh, the model for that seems to be some kind of collaboration between a university professor and a union leader. And that's not at all what I was kind of interested in. So. Um, what I wanted to look at was uh, uh, how how people deal with um, theoretical issues, issues of legitimacy, of historical evolution, of political organization, democracy, rights, etc., uh, in a much more bottom-up way. So how do people deal with them? Well, usually by writing and by publishing. So looking at how that happens, how groups form that discuss these issues, how publications appear that document the discussions of these issues. So because of Chinese China's unique environment, of course, many of these publications are not officially sanctioned. So they can't be, they don't have an ISBN number, they don't have an official registration. Many of them are just ad hoc groups. So sometimes they take a step further. If they are not too sensitive, they can actually register and they become maybe periodically something more official. But many of them are just in a kind of gray zone. So, uh, for example, to take an example you mentioned earlier uh, in the case of amateur historians, so people who worked on the Mao era, um, uh, you know, some people would call for collections for, for, for memories of the Cultural Revolution, and then they would receive hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts. So what they would just do is collate these manuscripts into a PDF document and call it, you know, uh, so there's a famous journal called uh, Memory, uh, uh, and so just call it, okay, issue number 25 of Ji and send it out by email to all the people who are interested in this topic. So that's often, I mean, reality in China is often very kitchen sink, um, but that's also the great vitality of, of Chinese intellectual society, is that uh, it, it's, it's unimpeded by um, some of the issues, so it's clearly impeded by many other issues like the presence of the state and censorship and so on, but it's also unimpeded by certain issues, I would say, of prestige or of um, legitimate um, uh, public speech, uh, that arise in in some Western societies. So um, so that's really where where I wanted to put the focus, and that that was that was sort of my my entry point. Um, so looking at these networks, these groups, these publications away from the larger figures, and yes, looking at published texts um, also as a kind of a point of methodology, um, because on the one hand. 
my argument is not simply about great minds, but it's about what actually happens in society. So I'm not so much interested in someone's very uh, unique ability to formulate a concept, but also in the circulation of these concepts and these discussions. So texts that are public, they always have some kind of circulation. They're always somehow available. And of course, studying public texts is also uh, some minimal protection for the people involved. It at least protects them from the suspicion that you know they have been selectively communicating text to Western scholars or this kind of this kind of um, uh, accusation. And of course, what's very interesting as well about the book is how you very precisely locate Minjian intellectuals um, within this context, while also distinguishing them, distinguishing them from grassroots activists. So. What's key to this, as you note, are four main traits, and here again I quote you. First, Minjian, intellectuals are specific intellectuals in the sense of Foucault's definition, neither generalists, autonomous but not specialized, nor experts, specialized but not autonomous. They speak out publicly on the basis of their specific knowledge. Second, they define their activity as intellectuals in connection with vulnerable or marginal groups of society. Third, what makes them intellectuals is their public discourse, including their discourse on their own activities and status for this discourse, as they rely on the embryonic and always endangered public sphere that has appeared in China. Fourth, they define their own activities being neither part of the state nor part of the nor part of the part of the market or nor part of the market, pardon me, and in this way attempt to open space for a possible third vector. So taking a step back, each of these traits both carries and creates implications for what you term a pluralizing public sphere, even as these characteristics develop separately and also in tandem with one another. How would you then describe this developing public sphere in terms of audience, media consumption, whether print or otherwise, for the Minjian intellectuals? And here, of course, your discussion of sources brought this question to the fore. Uh, the public sphere is a kind of perennial subject of vexation in China studies. That the whole idea of a public sphere has been very strongly disputed by historians, especially. Um, so I, I don't really make any strong normative argument. I just um, try to look at how uh, uh, publications function in China and how publications function beyond the kind of very official. Uh, uh, domain. So, I mean, historians of the Soviet Union have talked about this kind of saturated publicness in authoritarian regimes. So there's always a form of publicness, but it's so public. I mean, so the, like, the victory parades on Red Square and so on, it's so public that it's, it's not really, it's in fact simply a saturation of the public domain by the state rather than actually an area in which state and society have some form of interaction. So, um, as I said, the kind of uh, prelude to the appearance of this uh, um, space of publicness uh, was uh, the uh, reform wave of marketization of the uh, cultural sector in China in the 1990s, which created uh, greater spaces for um, challenging censorship, discussing certain topics, um, and also looking at new, new issues that didn't really feature sort of um, legitimately in Chinese discussions uh, earlier. I mean, to give you an example, uh, there was suddenly an explosion of interest in studies of sex workers. Uh, now, this would not be have been deemed a kind of um, 
acceptable topic in Chinese academia or even Chinese newspapers in the 1980s. So uh, this kind of social issue um, emerged as uh, something that could be discussed in public and for which different, you know, to which different approaches could be taken. Um, so uh, I do think that Foucault's kind of model of, of uh, specific intellectuals in the sense of people who have uh, specific knowledge about certain problems but who are not experts who are working for the state or for the market. Um, so they are autonomous in that sense. They, they use their specific knowledge in a way that is put at, in the service of these vulnerable communities rather than in the service of the state or the market that's paying them. I do think that this is quite enlightening to understand the, the, the Chinese case in the 1990s. So the whole idea that um, knowledge had to be reconstructed outside of state institutions and without sort of immediately crossing over to the other side to this kind of entirely capitalist society where knowledge was simply a commodity. So um, of course these people who had been trained in China's state-run system, um, well, uh, Many of them have very different political views. Some of them, of course, embraced capitalism and, and in fact, some of them also left China for good when they were able to do so. But many of them also had reservations about this kind of commodification of the, of the cultural sector and commodification of knowledge in particular, also because of the uh, kind of, um, I mean, problems of which we are well aware uh, uh, in, in, in Western societies, how expertise can actually be instrumentalized, you know, whether it's by um, uh, uh, multinational corporations in the food sector, in the uh, medical sector, uh, in connection with the environment. So these are all issues that the Chinese public is well aware of. So uh, they certainly don't idealize, because there is this notion among some China scholars that uh, Chinese intellectuals embrace the market. Um, I, I would say that that's not entirely true. I mean, some did. The people who have these very highly theoretically constructed views where, where concrete problems never really enter the picture, of course, some of them said, you know, well, China will be saved through the market. You know, we have to... Uh, leave socialism behind and move towards capitalism and the market and so on. But most people who were engaged with real issues didn't see things in such simplistic terms. So constructing a new form of knowledge, whether about the past, um, so Mao, the history of the Mao era, which is hardly ever discussed in history departments in, in Chinese universities, whether social problems like migrant workers who are dis disenfranchised by state policy or other people who are similarly disenfranchised, like, like, like sex workers I just mentioned, so basically people without residence permits, people without work units, so people who are uh, not in the sort of uh, uh, official structures of Chinese society. So, so all of this required a new form of knowledge and a form of knowledge that needed to be constructed outside of the uh, institutions that legitimize knowledge in China and in other societies too. So this I think is also a kind of interesting point for um, academics in, in Western societies to meditate on, uh, you know, to what extent um, knowledge uh, uh, should be constructed more or outside of institutions and outside of the reach of both the state and the market. Uh, so um, that, that I think is a point of more of broader relevance that's also part of this, this kind of public publicness. Um,
I should add a footnote to that, which is that this moment of public debate was also a moment that was in some sense um, short uh, and uh, has, although it's not entirely disappeared, it has been uh, further restricted uh, in the last uh, seven or eight years since Xi Jinping took office. Um, these spaces have definitely uh, uh, become narrower. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, this gives us a lot of material to still work with here. Uh, and here, for our listeners who haven't yet read the book, but hopefully will, I was hoping you could maybe discuss or even compare, say, two or three figures from the book who are sort of paradigmatic Mingzheng intellectuals, and maybe focusing a little bit also on their own self-representation -rep mm. within these constraints that you just described. Yes, yeah, so uh, I think some of these, I mean, the fascination is that some of these figures are really extremely colorful. So uh, uh, it, it's, uh, that's also why I've included, uh, despite resisting the kind of individualization of the argument, I've included short capsule biographies of 30 uh, uh, personalities at the end of the book in an appendix. Um, well, let me start sort of with a, an off-center reference. So two, uh, two well-known scholars, one a historian and one a sociologist, actually uh, started out in very unforeseen ways. So um, Shen Zhihua is one of the most well-known historians of the Mao era working within China. Uh, so Shen Zhihua began uh, working on a PhD on the Cold War, the early Cold War, and its implications for China around the Korean War uh, in the early 80s. And shortly after defending his dissertation, he was arrested by a state security and uh, sentenced to two years in prison. So uh, when he came out of prison with his PhD in hand, he figured that the job market wasn't looking too good. So he headed south. So these are the mid-1980s. He headed south to Guangzhou, and he entered the gold trade. So he made a fortune trading gold, um, and he remained in Guangzhou for uh, about five or six years. But he still had this idea of going back to Cold War studies and studying history. So as uh, <coughs> uh, as 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 things sort of unfolded, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, and uh, Shen Zhihua, who spoke uh, very good Russian. Um, decided he would use his millions to go to Moscow and find anything he could lay his hands on uh, related to China in the Soviet archives. So he uh, went back to see the Academy of Social Sciences and he actually set up a partnership with them to access the Soviet state archives. And he hired a team of 20 researchers and they went to Moscow for uh, several months, maybe almost a year, I think. And uh, they brought back uh, tons and tons of documents, which he has placed in his university archive, so he's made a copy of them, which remains in the Institute of History at the Academy of Social Sciences in Beijing, and he was then hired in East China Normal University in Shanghai, where the, the other copy uh, is placed in the what's called the Cold War Archive. So um, this is typically an example of how you know someone has sort of uh, been able to work outside, both inside and outside, but mainly outside the system to pursue uh, his own form of kind of knowledge uh, production. Um, 
Yudian Rong is a very similar story, actually. Uh, so he's a, uh, a sociologist who similarly uh, made a fortune in real estate before uh, getting hired at the Academy of Social Sciences. Um, and he argues that his total freedom of expression is guaranteed by the fact that he's a millionaire and if the academy fires him he uh, can still uh, you know uh, survive without any uh, without any trouble so he then established he bought a house in one of these uh, artist villages that you mentioned on the in the uh, eastern suburbs of Beijing so uh, these villages were often places where artists and migrant workers so all these people who didn't have residence permits could get cheap housing um, with the problem that their property rights weren't really guaranteed so uh, constructions uh, because of the status the uh, of the of, of the land in these places there is an issue that when land gets the status of land gets re reconverted they can be expropriated without compensation so um, anyway he built a house there so it was ample land he built a house and he set up what he called the petitioners archive so he was particularly interested in petitioners so this is another group among these sort of marginal groups so petitioners are people who have been thrown out of all the uh, possible recourses within the Chinese legal system so they've lost their you know their their various uh, legal cases at every level and they petition the central administration to get their cases redressed so sometimes um, you know, could could be anything. Uh, could be a labor camp during the Mao era. It could be a divorce case. It could be a labor accident. It could be really anything. Um, so uh, Yu Tianzhong set up an archive of twenty thousand uh, petitioner files, which are in his house in this uh, uh, migrant uh, worker and artist village. And he also started painting and making films and uh, inviting uh, the artists who were in that area to consult his archive. So this is how this. Kind of um, uh, ecosystem of alternative knowledge came into being. Um, so uh, yeah, maybe I'll just stop there. I think those are two quite quite good examples of of of, of this uh, argument. Well, I almost want you to not stop and to go forth as an historian, speaking to an historian, to talk a little bit about that group of independent historians who you mentioned. Some of the writers who come up are the Spark writers. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, Hey, hey, uh, Feng Feng Ming, yep. Ha Feng Ming, Ai uh, Shou Ming, Gao Hua, and uh, Yang Jisheng. And this is a really extraordinarily rich chapter in the book that resists any easy summation. But just for our colleagues listening as historians, I'm wondering if you can draw some sort of a comparison between your own working methods, which we've already discussed, and the historiographical methods of these own amateur historians who as you just also mentioned with the archive, are coming into the, came into the picture as Minjian intellectuals. Clearly, um, so at this point, I mean, the history of, of the early PRC, as it's officially known, was a kind of very, very sensitive area of study. So no, you know, no PhD student in his or her right mind would uh, venture into this field simply because of the unavailability of archives and the need to for complete vetting of everything by party structures and so on. Um, so the history of, of that period that was written was a very sort of elite-centered history that was focused on the, the, the main leaders around their public speeches, uh, uh, Mao, factional conflicts, this kind of thing. So 
this didn't tally with what most people remembered of the Mao era. Uh, most people didn't follow factional conflicts in Beijing between this or that faction. They anyway, they you know at best they would discover them after so and so you know Lin Biao or whoever had been uh, denounced by People's Daily as a stinking running dog of revisionism. But um, uh, people had lots of other memories of the Mao era. So what? These people who I define, they don't necessarily define themselves that way as amateur historians of the Mao era. So some of them are actually trained historians who work on other areas, either other uh, time periods of Chinese history or Western history, and who have turned their skills to a kind of hobby, which does not find an institutional um, space, but which allows them to write books. There's a very prominent historian of the Qing uh, dynasty who has written a reference book on the educated youth uh, education movement in the Cultural Revolution. Um, there's another very distinguished uh, Americanist who has written a book on factional conflicts in uh, Peking, Beijing universities uh, during the Cultural Revolution, Red Guard conflicts, um, so this kind of thing. But then others are also um, simply uh, ordinary people who've tried to collect testimony, uh, historical documents, conduct um, oral history interviews in order to recapture something of the Mao era. So these methods met with strong criticism. I mean, that has also been the case in Western academia, that oral history has been criticized for its biases, for its shortcomings. So many of these uh, historians, for for example, Yang Zisheng was a very is a very famous case. Yang Zisheng is a retired journalist who worked for uh, uh, Xinhua New China News Agency, um, and through his earlier connection was able to gain access to archives. Uh, but also to local cadres, local officials who provided him with internal reports, which allowed him to write the first kind of unofficial history of the Great Famine to be published. Um, I want to say within China, it was actually published in Hong Kong, but it did circulate widely uh, in, Sh in China called Tombstone. And there's a very... Uh, um, uh, there's a very good English translation, which has been published by Penguin. Um, so, uh, of course, Yang Zisheng's work is in some ways unsystematic. The sources are often unverified. They can't go through this kind of rigorous uh, testing process that you know some historians who uh, live in a very ideal world uh, would like to put all uh, historical material through. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it was a, a very, very significant contribution to a field that was uh, uh, almost unexplored, or at least um, uh, uh, have been only very partially uh, explored. So uh, yes, in a sense, I do take inspiration from all of these, from these historians and also the uh, Minzian sociologists who sort of do some kind of kitchen sink uh, research. I mean, to some extent, I'm happy to uh, describe my book as a form of kitchen sink research, you know, just trying to uh, collect what I think are significant texts um, that articulate in uh, significant ways how intellectuals sort of uh, legitimize their uh, knowledge of uh, Chinese society and Chinese history. Um, but of course, understanding all the biases in this kind of unsystematic approach of working with uh, uh, unverified, randomly selected sources that can't always be adequately contextualized or, or, or sort of theorized. Well, as you said before, reality is kitchen sink in China, so perhaps that's a meaning of method and reality. Mm. 
touching on these same issues as well, um, I'd like to ask about another idea that you mobilize at times in the book, and that's namely of counterpublics. Uh, here, it's particularly um, present in your discussions of films with the emergence of what Li Jianting calls small environments. Can you comment a little further on this idea of counterpublics? Um, so counterpublics in their canonical definition are sort of subaltern groups that are connected by a shared vocabulary, shared references, um, a kind of sub-public or a public that is in opposition to the main public sphere. Um, so for example, radical counterpublics in uh, early uh, uh, 19th century London, for example, have been studied in this way, radical printers, anarchists, or so on. Um, there is some similarity uh, in studying these groups in China, um, because as I said, they have this kind of shared um, conceptualization of reality. They uh, try to understand reality, and again, this is a kind of echo between their work and what I've at least attempted to do. They try to study a reality not through the official categories that are prescribed by the state or by Marxist theory, which is still largely the framework of official academic inquiry in China, um, but by looking at how people actually refer to their own activities and their own their own sort of activities of meaning making, um, so in that sense, uh, uh, places like film festivals, um, these groups that produce unofficial history journals, uh, uh, informal organizations that support migrant workers. They are not simply um, uh, social forms of social activism. They also produce a kind of discourse of, I would say, knowledge about society, of how society works. So that's sort of where I, I feel that the notion of counterpublics comes in. These are people who are uh, broader networks within society who uh, uh, share this view of disenfranchised people who are deprived of speech, who are um, deprived of meaningful participation in social decisions, who are somehow uh, pushed to the margins and have no say in important matters. So, um, of course, again, as I said, it's, a, it's not an entirely rigorous argument, but I, I do think that this allows uh, us to understand Chinese society in a much more dynamic manner than it's often portrayed. It's not simply the sort of uh, stifling, um, all-powerful state and the kind of atomized individuals or the heroic dissidents. It's a much more diffuse uh, situation in which, you know, lots of people may read some texts or, you know, click on certain social media uh, posts or share them even, um, all the while remaining in a kind of gray area. So this, I think, is what counterpublics can uh, uh, refer to. So as we've been zooming in, mm. I do want to zoom out a little bit on the same level um, of not just counterpublics, but also the Minjian intellectuals considered a little more collectively. And here I found in your account about the activities of lawyers, academics, and petitioners, um, a very interesting idea of almost something of cumulative, not Whiggish, but cumulative sort mm. of progress. And that is with the focus on practical problems and issues. Uh, in the case of law, a slow con consolidation or protection of constitutional rights, 
established or re-established at the same practical level, with a potential to move upwards into more abstract discourses and political rights, rather than vice versa. Not that it will happen, mm -hmm. but it's opening the possibility for it. And if we think of this in terms of a vertical development, I'm curious if you think there's any, if it was or is, a horizontal component to this, of Ninjan intellectual activities across China, and then also almost a syn synchronous component in terms of the consolidation of rights and expectations of rights for, say, housing or for immigration rights, amounting to something more than separate uh, interventions, mm. for lack of a better word. Well, I was always struck uh, uh, over these years when traveling around China that in any uh, town or city of a certain size, and most cities are of a certain size in China, um, inevitably you would find these groups of people. You would find a local group of people, you know, collecting uh, memories of the Mao era. You find a group of people who are sort of working together to support migrants or sex workers or other disenfranchised groups. So um, in that sense, yes, there is this form of horizontal proliferation. As to whether these groups are actually networked, well, that clearly is one of the great concerns of the Chinese state and one that the state has been willing to devote overwhelming resources to prevent. So the fact that these um, uh, these groups are not strongly networked and maybe not very cumulative in their activities is certainly also due to the very active attention of the Chinese state. Um, also, if I may ask this, perhaps a bit more of a broader question, are there blind spots or exclusions mm for Minjiang uh, activities. Here there's the question which you touch upon in the book of Chinese policies towards Tibet, but I was also struck by the absence of any mention to Uyghurs. Yes, so um, that's, that's a very legitimate question. Uh, so to what extent Chinese intellectuals are somewhat um, uh, blind to the situation of people like Tibetans or Uyghurs who are largely out of sight. I mean, if you choose not to see them and you're established in urban downtown Beijing. Um, uh, I would say that Uyghurs and Tibetans maybe don't feature prominently, but they're not a blind spot. They can't be described as a blind spot of Minjian activity. So uh, the main example I quote in the book is this report written by Gongmeng, which was the, the, the most a prominent sort of civil rights group, uh, but also a kind of Minjian think tank, a think tank that tried to produce knowledge about certain social issues that were not, in their view, um, dealt with correctly by the state. And they uh, uh, paid a lot of attention to the um, uh, uh, riots or the, 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 the protests that took place in Lhasa in 2008, March of 2008. And they actually set up an independent investigation team with Tibetan journalists studying in Beijing who went back to Lhasa and wrote a report from a kind of Minjian perspective on the reasons for the uh, protests in Tibet. And that report was certainly, um, I would say, played a big role in, in, in the shutting down and the state's decision to shut down Gongmeng. Um, on Uyghurs, uh, so one uh, person I'm very uh, happy to mention is Ilham Toti, who I don't mention in the book, but I would say that he's a kind of very prominent um, uh, Minjian intellectual in the sense that he, uh, as a Uyghur um, who went through the uh, Chinese university system, the kind of academia um, 
the academic uh, honor system and ended up a professor of economics in Beijing and tried to use knowledge, use his own understanding of Uyghur society to uh, sort of somehow diffuse tensions a little bit. Of course, uh, as we know, that also ended uh, very tragically when he was arrested and sentenced to death, uh, sentenced to life imprisonment, sorry. Um, but um, uh, of course, uh, he and also other Uyghurs and also Tibetans have also been defended on pro bono basis by some of these rights lawyers. So there are connections between all of these groups. As our conversation draws to the close, I should mention my regrets that there are so many figures and types of figures that we haven't been able to address, from filmmakers to bloggers to journalists, newspaper editors. So hopefully listeners will come to read your book and discover more that we've only even just mentioned here or touched upon. But to conclude, I would like to ask, um, for a scholar of your caliber, what you're reading in the field and what scholars you would recommend to other historians of China. Well, firstly, I should uh, uh, say that a lot of the writings of the people I study in this book are actually available in some way or another in English translation. If you're, uh, if 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 uh, if you're willing to sort of trawl through the footnotes or to search around a little bit on the internet, you can find a lot of material. And I'd recommend two websites. Uh, one is Reading the China Dream, which is run by a group of colleagues in Canada and uh, translates a lot of Chinese intellectual writing, um, more on the academic side, um, but uh, a lot of very, uh, very, very interesting texts on that website. And the other is the China Heritage website, which is run by Jeremy Barmay, who is also very, um, very, very unique uh, uh, scholar of Chinese intellectuals. So I, I really recommend those for everyone. Uh, in terms of scholarship, I would say that um, on this topic, there hasn't been a lot recently. There's a recent book by Els van Dongen on uh, uh, Chinese intellectuals, which I also uh, strongly recommend. And um, I'll just end up with recommending a few uh, random things I've been reading, which reach back a little more historically into what comes before this wave of Minzian. Uh, recommend uh, Zheng Xiaowei's book on the 1911 revolution in Sichuan, which is really an amazing kind of study of tying together social and intellectual history. Um, Emily Baum's recent book on madness in Republican China, a very uh, important uh, topic and also timely in that it touches on uh, medical history. And also uh, Brian Tsui's book on conservatism in Republican China, um, uh, also a kind of intellectual history which shows the ramifications of sort of non-revolutionary intellectuals and the sort of alternative genealogies that are often overlooked in uh, intellectual history of modern and contemporary China. Well, thank you so much for your time, Professor Beck. And for our listeners, I would just like to again recommend the book, Minzheng, The Rise of Chinese China's Grassroots Intellectuals, published by Columbia University Press in 2019. And again, Professor, thank you for your time. Thank you. That was a wonderful conversation. 